Hello, welcome to Remember the Film, the podcast where we remember to tell Sid he's a fascist pig. I'm your host, Josh Bradley, and I'm joined as always by one of my co-hosts, the savior of humanity, Jeff Grizz Ulrich. What's up, Jeff? Well, that is putting awful high expectations on me, buddy, but uh, I'm doing great. How are you, Josh? <laughs> I'm good. And we're also joined by, the other, by our other co-host, who I suspect, he hasn't said this, but I suspect he's actually the father of Key's baby, Hugo Panay. Oh my god. What's up, Hugo? <laughs> well, she she didn't remember all the wankers' names, so, I mean, I don't know. Could yeah. Be. I mean, you could be the wanker, man. I yeah, the, who knows? You could be the wanker. <laughs> yeah. I guess I could. Uh, today we're talking about uh, children of men, which is what I just alluded to, with Hugo being the father of the baby that saves humanity. I have to say, I kind of disapprove of the name Bazooka for a child, but that's just me. <laughs> Look, if you wanted to name the child, you should have stayed in her life, man. That's all that's I'm saying. Fair. That's fair. <laughs> Where are you at on Froly? The name Froly. I can get behind Froly. I can get behind Froly. It's weird, okay. but... Yeah. Okay. You can get behind Froly, all right. <laughs> first child right. in 18 first years. Baby name it first baby born in 18 years. <laughs> uh before we get to the dystopian nightmare that is children of men uh let's talk about what we've been watching hugo what have you been watching this week um i watched a bunch of stuff this week because uh my girlfriend got covid for the second time she's fine she's already negative but we were basically we were stuck in at home so we just kind of watched a bunch of movies and tv shows um so yeah nice. we re-watched the whole thor trilogy from the marvel cinematic universe because the last one is well the last one the next one love and thunder is coming out next week um a few days from now mm-hmm. at the time of recording um and uh the first few movies are quite boring like kind of kind of hard to get through <laughs> uh to be honest i haven't seen either one yeah. i haven't seen the first two i was Especially gonna ask like, because hugo and i disagreed he, like he, he and i were messaging about thor 2 and i right. i say that it's still an overall positive experience like i still i don't regret having watched it at the end of it it's not it's definitely the worst mcu movie yeah but uh i don't i don't hate that i've watched it i don't like i don't based on the critical reception the eternals gave thor 2 run for its money is the worst movie is is thor 2 or the eternals better i don't know i think i I like eternals a lot better but i I like eternals a lot better than thor 2 as well i think it's just different times like Thor 2 came out in a time where there were fewer MCU movies. It's kind of a different moment, I guess. Um, I think also different expectations, I suppose. But I agree it's the worst Marvel movie, and I, I, to be honest, I found it a little boring. Like, the first one has some cool stuff. The fish out of water stuff is fun. Um, Natalie Portman, Portman is always great, um, although she has no chemistry with uh, with Hemsworth in that movie, but whatever. You, you kind of take it. Um, and Ragnarok is a delight. It's, it's just... It's just delightful. I love Ragnarok. Uh, it's just like a YTT film, and it's it's just fun. Like I'm I'm Korg and made of rocks. I don't that's I don't know how he came up with that. I'm sure he's a character in the comics, but it's very much his own comedic spin on it, and it's it's great. Um, such a good time. It also like actually looks good in moments. Like the, the, you know how the MCU sometimes looks a little flat visually. Like there are some visual moments in Ragnarok that look really cool. Um, there are some you know some weird green screen things that they always have, but like overall that. Like, really 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 fun movie um also we watched a, like a random assortment of films like we watched scarface which i had never seen and that i guess i have a hot take on scarface because i didn't enjoy it very much i, it, I i'm, it a, kinda, I'm in the same boat i think i think scarface is a movie that if you see it in 1983 it's great but now it it just seems a little simplistic because i feel like i've seen three Martin Scorsese movies that do the same thing, but a lot 
better. Do it better. For me. Yeah. Like so, it it just like in my mind, I was comparing it to Goodfellas and The Wolf of Wall Street and and that type of movie, and it just didn't hold up to that standard. But I guess I'm just coming at it from a perspective of somebody who's seeing it in 2022 for the first time, so it's kind of difficult to make that comparison, I guess. Um, but I also watched some movies that I did enjoy quite a lot. I, I watched Logan Lucky uh, by Soderbergh. A, a great, love little, that movie, man. The movie's great, so good. Great, yeah. fun little movie. Like a very uh, what so what Soderbergh does. It's like a very simple story. We're doing one thing. It's all centered around this one thing, and it executes it so well. And it's such a cathartic, satisfying thing to just see this heist be. I just love heists. Yeah, it's just works so well. He's 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 the best at doing that. I don't know how he does it. It's 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 really good. Um, then I watched uh, Bullet, uh, the the classic nineteen sixty eight mm. movie. Um, Stephen Queen. Stephen Queen. Yes. The I guess the the pace of the movie it feels like it is a bit dated. Like it doesn't completely hold up in that sense. Like it it is a little slow and not a lot happens at times and and all that. But like. Him, Steve McQueen is a very charismatic actor, uh, and the famous chase scene that they do in kind of at the midway point of the movie is still extremely impressive. Um, you, you, you understand why it's kind of uh, remembered sort of in the history of cinema as one of the great car chase scenes because it, it's it's really good. Um, yeah, so I enjoyed it. Didn't absolutely love it, but I'm, I'm glad to have watched it. Um, and then I watched uh, what else did I watch? I watched A History of Violence by uh, David Cronenberg, mm. which is. An interesting film. I was very, very into it. And then it ends. Like At one point, the movie just kind of cuts. And you're like, oh, I guess that's it. Like, we, you know, there's a central metaphor. I get it. Um, and it doesn't, like, it doesn't go beyond that. Which, you know, it works. And you're, I think, in the moment while you're watching it, it, it feels very engrossing. And there's something about the way he directs that is very weird and distant, but but in an interesting way. Um, but what, it, then it kind of ends. What, what more did you want to see? I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know. There's there's some catharsis at the end that for me is missing. I think the movie cuts right before you get sort of an uh, an emotional catharsis to the story, but also at the same time I understand that that's what the movie is doing. Like the movie is very kind of emotionally distant. It, it, it's kind of a style choice. So I'm not necessarily mad about it but i don't know it's kind of, it's a very interesting film i'm glad to have watched it it's a film that i would re-watch to to find more in it and i think the central idea of it works quite well um and then finally i watched the korean uh, thriller i kind of uh burning i don't know if you guys have seen this movie mm. um, i haven't seen it but it was it was a raved about when it came out great film a film that we could do for 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 this podcast honestly like it's a great great movie it's very understated it's a thriller but like it unfolds very slowly in a way that you almost don't know that it's a thriller until like almost the third act but but it, you can tell that there's something weird going on um a great movie i suggest that one the most out of the ones that i saw so that's me i watched a bunch because i was stuck at home grizz you have not watched as much. I did not watch you've as been much. Watching. In fact, I didn't watch any movies this week until yesterday. Uh, but yesterday I watched four movies, so I made up for it. <laughs> uh, I watched Five Cream, or Scream, as it's actually called. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I finally got around to The new to that. Scream the sequel new... from January, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. And yeah. uh, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. It's I, I'll yeah. never get tired of this good. meta-genre commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh it's interesting that like horror lends itself so well to that. I think 
but I would be interested to see more stuff like that tackled in other genres. But this movie in particular was was good. It, 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 I can't wait for the next one because uh, I I just I always want to see how they're going to make fun of their own <laughs> movies next. You know, like like they they always find a way to be self. Uh, uh, make fun of themselves and also make fun of the rest of the genre while also delivering a good, you know, scary movie. Uh, yeah. I think the, uh, I think the new, they're, they're, they are going to make another one and mm-hmm. I think it's going to be coming sooner rather than later. I think they got a scream six, like, yeah, six scream. It's, it's definitely already written. It might've already <laughs> be, it might be in production already as far as I know. I'm not sure, but yeah, we'll get a new, a new one soon. Uh, and then I watched ambulance or ambulance. <laughs> the Michael Bay uh, you're being really cheeky with your titles <laughs> look this is how he wrote it like it, it highlights yeah, the LA in Ambulance <laughs> which is a Michael Bay movie it's you know exactly what you'd expect from Michael Bay uh, but an excellent action and uh, you do get it, like it lends itself so well to building tension in the entire movie because the entire movie is a big chase scene so, you know, how can you not kind of just get really into that? Uh, I, I did have some complaints about uh, how, like, invincible police are until they're just suddenly not. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's still a fun movie. And then I watched... I like that movie. I watched that was good. Minions, The Rise of Gru, which just came out this weekend. Mm. Uh, did did you wear a suit? I did not. Sad. It's a it's a it's a minions movie, so if you enjoy the minions, uh, then you'll still have fun with this. My one complaint is that honestly they don't let the minions do enough stuff on their own. The first minions movie, so much of it was just the minions getting caught up in weird situations, and so that that's you know that's when they're their best. Uh, and then lastly, I watched "Won't You Be My Neighbor," the documentary about mm. Fred Rogers that came out in 2018. Uh, it's excellent. It's an excellent documentary. It's very poignant. And the messaging of Fred Rogers, you know, in, in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, as well as the messaging of this documentary is stuff that I, I really think it, the, you, you really need to be reminded of that there's, there's good people out there and to take a moment and take things slow and appreciate yourself and all those great lessons that, you know, Fred Rogers taught to children that are still important for us to remember as adults. So it was kind of a nice little uh, cap to the end of the day for me to watch that and be like, yeah, yeah. you know what? I'm, I'm a good guy. I like myself. And, uh, and I engage with good people like Josh and Hugo. Uh, so it's, it's a feel-good thing for sure. That's really lovely, Grizz. And that's a really lovely movie and a lovely sentiment. And also a lot of people really like that movie because it did really good business. That made $23 million at the box office, which is – as a really, really high for a documentary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I remember, though, that that was the uh, summer of movie pass. So I think more people were, uh, at least in L.A., like I, I went to a, a screening of that and it was packed. Yeah, Wasn't so that just the shut best up. summer in movie history for movie fans? <laughs> that was the best summer in movie history for movie fans. Absolutely. Yes, 100%. Rest in peace, movie um, Bring it back. <laughs> bring it back, you cowards, because I miss it. Um... Like you, Grizz, uh, I didn't watch any movies this week until basically yesterday, and um, I watched You've Got Mail, or I rewatched You've Got Mail, and I rewatched Sleepless in Seattle with Katie, and that's because like 
I had started You've Got Mail on Friday night, and I didn't finish it. So I watched the last 15 minutes with Katie and our friend um, after we went to the beach. And uh, after we finished the last 15 minutes of You've Got Mail, <laughs> Katie was like, I wonder if Sleepless in Seattle is streaming anywhere. And it was. So we just put it on and ended up watching like the whole thing. So um, a Nora Ephron kind of day. Reason being is uh, I've mentioned on this podcast that I've been making TikToks in the recent weeks and uh the ones that people like the most are about when harry met sally and so i think i might have to become like a Nora efron person uh at least on tiktok if i want to keep the engagement up so uh we'll see where that goes stay tuned um that makes sense where are we at you guys uh you guys seen both those you got me on i've seen neither of them i mean neither yeah i think i I mean i might have seen them like on tv in when i was a child but i don't actually remember them i have seen harry when harry met sally but i haven't seen when, when yeah. harry met sally either that surprises Wait, me grizz you yeah. really like comedies and bro stuff. i do but you know there was there was a for a long time i've been of the mindset that like for rom-coms they are most enjoyable when you're watching them with your partner and i've been single until last year mm. uh so <laughs> for for quite some time uh, so okay well a, n- a number of things then. Number one, When Harry Met Sally is a perfect movie. It's a it's pretty good. stone cold, five out of five. One of my favorites of all time, so watch that. Second of all, uh, you should watch both Sleepless and You've Got Mails, just so you can tell me which one you prefer, because they are both romantic comedies that star Tom Hanks and Nate Bryan, directed and written by Nora Ephron. They came out within five years of each other, so they are constantly hmm. compared and pitted against each other. Well, the other thing is they, they've been imped so much in in tv shows and things and other movies are constantly referenced so you know i feel like i do know a decent amount about the plots of those movies uh without having seen them but uh, that's only given me that's only been another reason why i haven't gone back to watch them but you know what i watch enough movies i there's no real excuse for me to not go back and watch those movies at this point well i believe all three movies that we just mentioned are all on hbo max and i think two of them are on netflix if you don't have hbo max um, I think my, I don't think it's a hot take, but I think that I like, you've got mail a little bit more than Sleepers in Seattle, but, uh, Katie's kind of appalled by that. So I'm not giving you homework. You don't have to. I just think it's really, really enjoyable. So, you know, I got nothing else. Um, to so <laughs> might as well. <laughs> so those are, those are th- three very funny, very lighthearted movies. So let's, uh, take a hard left turn into a not so funny not so easy to watch movie, uh, which is Children of Men. I'm sorry if I'm to remember today. I think I picked this. Like I, this was on my list. Um, I kind of picked it impulsively at the end of last week's episode without putting much thought into it. And I think part of it is because um, I don't know. I don't feel great about the state of the world right now. And so you know, what a perfect time to watch Children of Men is when uh, sure your you reality is turning into a dystopian hell. And so you know, <laughs> let's watch dystopian hell. Yeah. Uh. Children Men was adapted from a 1992 novel by P.D. James, that is Phyllis Dorothy James, uh, who apparently, I, I don't, I know her because of this, but apparently she mostly wrote detective novels, mm-hmm. um, and she, uh, apparently the movie changed quite a bit from her novel, but from what I read, she approved of the movie. Um, I don't know how you couldn't, given how good this movie is. Yeah. Um, it was the book was adapted by Alfonso Crone and Timothy J. Sexton and David Arada and Mark Ferguson and Hawk Ostby. So that is five screenwriters. But if you remember, as I've told you guys before, if you see an ampersand between two names, that means they were as a writing team. 
Mm-hmm. We've seen A and D between two names. It means they wrote separate drafts, not as a writing team. So this is Alfonso Crone and Percent Timothy J. Sexton. So those two are a team. A and D, David Arada, so he worked on his own. A and D, Mark Ferguson, Ampersand, Hawk Ostby. So Mark Ferguson and Hawk Ostby are a writing team. They actually wrote Iron Man two years after this. Mm. Alfonso Crone, Timothy Sexton are a writing team. And then David Arada wrote a separate draft and the other uh, two teams. And apparently Clive Owen also gave like uncredited work to the screenplay per Alfonso Cuaron, uh, the, the lead of the movie. Interesting. Um, yeah, it premiered at Venice in September of 2006 uh, on September 3rd and then it debuted in the UK a few weeks later on September 22nd it had a limited US release on Christmas Day 2006 and then went wide January 7th 2007 it opened number one in the UK in September and it uh, I have actually have the weekend box office in the UK which is the first on this podcast uh, it opened number one ahead of The Queen and Talladega Nights were the wow. two movies behind Hell uh, yeah. Children of Men this ahead of the Queen in the UK is great. I mean, I mean, the Queen's a good movie too. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but it's, you know, Stephen Frears. Um, so hold on, top five: Children of Men, The Queen, Talladega Nights, Little Man, the Wayne's Brothers movies, and then You, Me, and Dupree. Oh, so wow. <laughs> quite a, quite a romp at the British box office. Wow. Uh, September twenty second, two thousand six. <laughs> um, and then uh, for um, the US release. When it when it went wide on January seventh, it debuted number three, and what's funny? So it, it opened Christmas in in limited release, and then opened wider two weeks later. And the number the top two movies at the box office, both on Christmas Day and then two weeks later on January seventh, were the same movie. Uh, um, Night at the Museum number one and Pursuit of Happiness number two. They were one and two at the box office for three, for three consecutive weeks when uh, between sort of men's platform and wider release. Um, it had a budget of 76 million box office 70.5, which is split between almost down the middle between 35 and a half million domestic and 35 million international. It was nominated for three Oscars, best adapted screenplay, best editing and best cinematography. And what I'm going to do right now is put the Wikipedia page for these Academy Awards in the chat. I've not looked at it. I want to see if I can guess what won in those three categories. Okay. And you guys have to tell me if I'm right or not. So again, we have best adapted screenplay. Best editing and best cinematography, and this is for the 2006 movies, 2007 Oscars. Okay, well, let's start with the. You have it in front play. of you. Are you yep. ready? Yep. I believe I believe William Monahan won that for The Departed. Am I right? Correct. Yep. You pronounce the name okay. wrong, but yes. What is it supposed to? Oh, the, yeah, departed. the Departed. Yeah, the bad. Departed. <laughs> and I believe I believe Thelma Schoonmaker also won Best Editing for The Departed, so that would have been the other another category that this which, movie lost in, right? Which is interesting. Uh, yes, that's correct. Because I feel like this movie should have won editing, like for sure. Well, we're going to talk about that, but let's 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 get the last guess in cinematography. I don't remember offhand. Could you give me the nominees for best cinematography? The nominees are The Illusionist, Dick Pope. Okay. The Prestige, Wally Pfister. Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo Doesn't Navarro. Matter. The Black Dahlia, Vilmos Zygmunt. And Children of Men, Emmanuel Lubezki. I know Wally Pfister didn't win because he won for Inception a few years later. And that was his first <laughs> and only win. Um, I don't think it was The Illusionist. And I'm hoping it wasn't the Black Dahlia, so I'm gonna guess it was. And I know this didn't win, so I'm gonna guess it was uh, um, Pants Labyrinth. You are correct. Pants Yay. Labyrinth won. Yeah, very good. Let's go. 
Uh, also pretty baffling that this didn't win Best Cinematography, but then Alfonso Lubezki, the cinematographer, Wild. would go on to win three consecutive Best Cinematography Oscars uh, a few years after this. So The first of which was another collaboration with Alfonso. Actually, Alfonso Cuarón's next movie was Gravity after this, because he didn't make a movie for seven yeah. years. Which is a bummer. It, it's, it sucks no, that he's wait. made two He's he's made two movies oh, yeah, since yeah, this. Yeah, right. Isn't that crazy? That's why That sucks. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, gravity. I guess, I guess this didn't do very well. This didn't do very well at the box office. Sadly, no, it did not. So, but it. it I mean, it very. In, I feel like it, it almost instantly became a cult classic. Like everybody was talking about this movie for, for a few years, right? Uh, I mean, well, well, I mean, continuing on, just finishing up the boilerplate. It, you know, it did not do great at the box office. Like I said, it, it did not make it back its budget, including you know, including international box office. So. It, flops i guess relatively speaking um but it did it did appear on many year-end top 10 lists um it's number 13 on the bbc's top 100 of the 21st century which is a list i uh respect an awful lot um and the movie's esteem has kind of risen a lot in the last like six or seven years i've noticed uh especially because it is you know there's you know anti-immigration plot lines in the movie that's pretty pretty apparent and Mm -hmm. then you know uh anti-immigration rhetoric has become very uh popular among certain circles in in international politics in the last six seven years so um the movie has been called prescient for that uh in addition to just being you know really entertaining so the premise of the movie it's just a very well-made movie and i think it was big enough when it came out like obviously we saw the 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 box office results weren't the you know way above their budget but uh it was popular enough movie that I think movie fans uh, were very aware of it and loved it. And so it's one of those movies that movie fans like to come back and talk about uh, years later as well, because it's like, it's right on the cusp of being mainstream, but it's not quite mainstream. So it's, you know, if you want to be like, Oh, well, have you seen children of men? Uh, (laughs) It's still in that category. You can, you can be film snobby with it. I never, I never, I never really, you might be right. Yeah. I mean, like you said, audiences didn't really show up for it at the time. And honestly, like it, I think it got undersold the Academy Awards too. three nominations and no wins. For sure. um, Like this is, I think not only the best movie of 2006, I think it's like, you know, among the best movies I've ever seen, not to be too hyperbolic about it. So um, I would have hoped this would do better both box office and uh, awards wise, but you know, here we are. Well, I do disagree about it being the best movie of 2006, as you are well aware, because well, The Departed is one of my favorite. Your Departed head, I know. Yeah, I know. We, we I, discussed that. For me, the it's it's wild that this didn't win editing and cinematography. That's crazy. Like the the, the editing and cinematography. I'll agree with that. For just sure. incredible. And like I think even when we talked about The Departed, we we d- definitely talked about oh the, there are some moments where the editing is kind of a little. It's messy and all over the place. That's a messy movie. That's a, yeah. that's a criticism that was there when the movie came out. So it's like pretty wild that they, they didn't reward this. But you know, it is what it is. Definitely, I think this has stood the test of time really, really well. Like, uh, I think it's I a movie so. that yeah. keeps on giving, and I feel like it becomes more prescient as time passes. Unfortunately, um, I certainly don't get sick of it, and you know. No. <laughs> sometimes when i feel bad about the world I'll, I'll turn to this movie to either make me feel worse or make me feel better i don't know which 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 one um <laughs> it, it brings me to the premise of the movie which uh again it's a dystopian hellscape futuristic movie that takes place in 2027 uh so at the time 21 years in the future 
and a in the movie a human hasn't been born in more than 18 years which is bringing society to the brink of collapse or really basically already to collapse like mm-hmm. the, the the uk the government in the uk still exists but every other government in the world has fallen so like are, are we past the point so of no at return least the, the uk like, government says or so they say yeah that's true so they say um so uh theo is the main character played by clive owen he's a jaded civil servant I don't really know what kind of job you have when the world is like this. They don't really go into specifics of what kind of work he does, but he's listed as a civil servant on Wikipedia. So, again, not sure what he's doing, sure. what kind of paper he's pushing around, but he's doing something he like that. He has some sort of office job. Yeah. yeah, yeah but so. it's definitely an office job and, from the look of it, a monotonous one. Yes. <laughs> and, again, I don't know how you, like, punch the clock and go into work when the world is uh, when just the world is ending outside your window, but uh, he's doing it, and that's how it's that's how he's going yeah um and uh he's recruited by his freedom fighting ex-wife i assume they're ex-wives they had a kid together at some point um who yeah. uh played by julianne moore who asked him to transport a, a refugee to the coast and then uh this refugee in key eventually reveals to theo that she's pregnant and she's the first pregnant person in more than 18 years which makes her trip to the coast a lot more dangerous and a lot more uh pressing and that's that's the movie. Is Theo trying to get key to the ocean? I, I, I guess this is a note about the kind of the premise and the world building of the movie. I, I love how it doesn't get into the specifics. Like it doesn't. It makes you. It gives you an idea of how the British government works, and it's a tyrannical government, and it blames everything on the immigrants. But we we don't know any specifics, so we don't see the dynamics of it. It we get a video where it's British propaganda saying, "Oh, the rest of the world." is collapsed completely. There are no governments out there. There's, everything's broken out there. We don't know if that's true. Like, it, it could just be propaganda. We Like, it's... That is never specified to us. We don't... Like, there's no sweeping, like, uh, thing where this shows us, oh, in this place, it, this happened. And there's a this few place, illusions. This happened. There's, no, there's illusions. You get a hint. You get an idea. But you don't get a full explanation. And especially, I love that they don't give us an explanation exactly for why this happened. Why... Mm-hmm people stopped having children we we don't know Never and anything. even the human project which is this organization of like what i guess would be scientists who are trying to sort of solve this and, and fight for humanity we never see them we we don't get a final scene where we're in the lab and we're like oh now we have the solution like the fact that it's all open to interpretation to some extent and that we don't know the specifics of what is going to happen before and after the movie i think it makes it that much better because you it makes you hope that things are, might be okay it, it gives you an idea of what is happening out there but but you never know and the characters never know and and so you feel very immersed in their story i i love that about this film grizz you had something there yeah i well i was just gonna say that uh I think it's interesting that like we, we see it from the British perspective here mm-hmm. uh, and you do see the, the montage of all of the capitals, you know, there's smoke billowing out of the various nations capitals and stuff like that. So what I imagine the world is, is that, uh, you know, this is, this is, a, this is propaganda to let them know, to try to convince people everything's fine in the UK. Keep calm and carry on, you know, all mm-hmm. the, all the classic, you know, uh, nationalist stuff there. Uh, but I imagine it's the same in the other countries that like in the U S it probably isn't a complete collapse. The government probably still exists in the United States, but it's probably in a futile situation, much like it is here in the UK and that they're just in denial. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the important thing is 
uh, from this opening sequence is that it's the world is in de- you know some parts of the world people are in denial about how bad uh, things are and what you know what's going to happen next. But uh, in their subconscious, everyone is aware that we are right on the cusp of complete and utter collapse. And then we get to see the complete and utter collapse. <laughs> well, so I think a couple of things. Number one, I want to mention the the two illusions that I can think of, of like what's happening outside of the UK. And the very first line in the movie, Over Black, is a news report where they run through the lead stories of the day before talking about Baby Diego's death, which I'll get to in a second. But the first line of the movie is, Day 1000 of the Siege of Seattle. So apparently Seattle has mm-hmm. been under siege for three and a half years, you know? And that's... Yeah, I'm so curious about what that means, what that looks like, what's been going on there. And then the second allusion to something outside of the UK is uh, when Theo meets his cousin, they mention something that happened in Madrid. And um, mm-hmm. the cousin says that he was able to rescue certain pieces of art from Madrid when it was either bombed or something horrible happened. And, and it, I don't remember the exact line, but like what I assume. It, yeah, what we assume is the real Guernica, which is. Yeah, Picasso's yeah. like mastodontic painting that he has, yeah, and it actually is in Madrid. Uh, I've seen that painting in Madrid before. Mm-hmm. The Reina Sofia. Um, but I don't remember the exact lines. But like Theo's cousin was like concerned about the art surviving what happened in Madrid, mm-hmm. and Theo like counters, "Yeah, it wasn't too great for the people either." You know, <laughs> the, the, the yeah. people yeah. who died. Um, so there's been some some shit going down around the world, and I think that both of these illusions and what you guys are both talking about is indicative of the fact that there's. Um, a lot happening on the fringes of this movie, like just outside the frame, mm-hmm. you know, like we have, we have a pretty simple, um, like a escape cat and mouse chase thriller, which is just this guy taking this woman to safety. Basically, that's the whole premise. But just outside of that, yeah. there's, you know, a lot happening on the periphery, a lot happening in the background. Um, I can't remember who different factions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a war happening. You know, that we're kind of, like, just seeing mm-hmm. glimpses of. And, like, the third act kind of takes place uh, in a war zone of sorts. Um, but, again, uh, that's not the focus. That's just on the fringes. Which which I think, um, I mentioned this to you guys in the chat, that, like, there's there's so much to unpack and so much to talk about in this movie. And I think that I want to say up front that there's no way we're going to unpack and talk about everything in an hour podcast episode. Um, so that's why I kind of just want to focus on, like, a few things and hopefully paint a picture yeah. of... Of, so that's of why we're going to talk for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. Um, <laughs> but um, I wanted to start with the opening scene because the opening scene is kind of like uh, uh, the, the, th- the three things I want to talk about are the sociological elements of the movie, um, the filmmaking, the technical f- aspects of the filmmaking, particularly like the, the one or shots that are so famous. And also Theo's arc, which is kind of, you know, this is a movie that's a really dystopian, hopeless world that kind of like ends on a hopeful, it is a, it's a journey towards hopefulness, I guess. And Theo, mm-hmm. the Clive Owen character kind of uh, personifies that. So like, those are the three things that I want to cover. And I think you can kind of talk about all of them in this uh, opening scene. Uh, Grace, you got something or no? Yeah. Well, I, I, I yes. So what is interesting about, uh, Theo, and you see this at the beginning of the movie, is the rest of the world is descending into greater hopelessness, while Theo's arc, which we're going to talk more about later, is rising in hopefulness. Uh, well, that's because like he's is... kind of he's kind of already reached the point of complete hopelessness that the world right. is kind of on its so, way to, you know. 
And he's he already experienced the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen to him has already happened. Yeah. Uh, so while the rest of the world is melting down, he's already at the bottom of the pit. So the only way for him to go is up. So I just think it's an interesting that their trajectories are you know running opposite of each other. Yeah, it, it is. It's a good point you bring up about. Um, you're alluding to the fact that he and Julian Moore, he and Julian uh, lost a son at some point before the events of the movie, uh, presumably about 20 years ago. Uh, so before the infertility yeah. happened, um, because he loses the fact that he and Julian had been together for 20 years and they presumably uh, split up when their two-year-old son died, I think is how old he was. So, um, yeah. So, you know, I, Theo is an interesting microcosm of like humanity as a whole, where like he lost his child and then suddenly all of humanity lost their children in a very literal sense. Um, and so like his, his journey from hopelessness to hope fullness is, you know, again, hopefully will be mirrored by society as Key's baby. Uh, you know, again, Key has a baby, which could be the hope for humanity. So we'll see. Um, uh, Hugo, what's the opening image? What's the opening shot? We haven't talked about opening shots in a while, but what's the, what's the opening shot of children of men? Do you remember the um, well, we get the big splash screen, which black screen, black screen, children and men written in white, uh, which I really well, like. In this, we get that's it at the, the title beginning of the card end. That really works. That's about really ninety great. seconds in. And then yeah. the first shot is it some street in London? I don't actually remember what the there opening is? shot is. I know the first scene, the but no, you know I'm I'm terrible with this. So I, okay. I was glad that you asked Hugo first because I was hoping Hugo would get it. And I wouldn't have <laughs> to be embarrassed about not remembering what the opening shot was. The opening shot is a crowded coffee shop, and every customer in the coffee, say shop, coffee shop, every customer in the crowded coffee shop is looking with uh, horror at a TV off screen that is playing the news. Mm-hmm. And then, as ev- no one's ordering coffee, even though it's elbow to elbow in this coffee shop, everyone's just too distracted by what the news story happening, and Theo jostles in through the crowd to order his coffee because he doesn't give a shit about the news story happening on screen even though everybody else is and the news story as we know is uh announcing the death of baby diego who is the youngest person on earth he was stabbed or something in in spain i think i don't remember where he was was, 18 years old he was 18 years old (laughs) he was stabbed and and everyone by a fan that he refused to take a picture with right exactly and so let's let's unpack this a bit uh number one uh, as I alluded earlier, there's three news stories that are, like, not the lead story before they talk about Baby, Baby Diego. And those three news stories are um, Day 1000 of the Siege of Seattle. Uh, the Muslim community is, like, protesting the government's occupation of mosques. And then a, uh, mm-hmm. an Im- immigration bill in the U.K. means that immigrants will continue to be um, turned away at borders and, and um, deported. And then the main story is Baby Diego's death, which I think is so fascinating and so illuminating of the of the world we're living in that uh, those three pretty bonkers headlines are not the lead story. And this completely um, it, it's a celebrity death, basically. It's, it's symbolic. Yeah. But that's the lead story. And that's the story that like when Theo goes to work a few scenes later, like every single person in his office is like watching coverage of this death and crying. And um, this coffee shop gets bombed. But the story that everyone's focusing on this morning is not the bomb of the coffee shop. It's a, it's a it's a symbolic celebrity death, you know. And I think that's very indicative of what the world is like. You know, it's it tells you that these bombings are common, and that people are really yeah. freaked out about kids <laughs> not being born. But okay, sorry, I'm 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 getting ahead of myself. So 
everyone everyone in this coffee shop cares about this news story, but Theo does not. I think that is also very indicative of like where his starting point is as a character. Like the world is descending into hopelessness, but he's kind of already hopeless and doesn't give a shit about the world ending, basically. And what's so interesting to me is that again, a bomb goes off in this coffee shop thirty seconds after Theo walks out the door. So like, had he been concerned about the news story and had he stopped and watched the news story with everyone else, he would have been, been killed. But because he was like already hopeless and doesn't give a shit about this, just wants to order his black coffee and get the fuck out of there, uh, he survives. I thought it was very interesting. And also, of course, he walks out of the coffee shop in a very good long uh, long shot, a, a long take, and then the camera spins around him, and it explodes. So, again, those are the three things that you can talk about from the opening scene. The, the long takes, Theo's arc of his hopelessness, and like the sociological impact of things happening. Sorry, that was a really long monologue. Grace, you got anything on this opening scene? Well, so I'll, I'll say that, um, just kind of echo what you've already talked about there a little bit, with the desperation of the world, uh, one, like you said, this is excellent world building, but uh, I just kind of, I'm fascinated by like how rapid the decline is that they set up in this world, that, you know, you say this is, you know, that, that Seattle's been under siege for three years, uh, so it's not a big news story anymore, uh, mm. but this whole thing, this is takes place in less than 20 years that we get to this point that uh, the world has completely collapsed. So, you know, uh, it's one of those things that I find myself in this opening sequence thinking, like, really, would, would the world fall to this degree that I think so. fast? And, you know, at the first time I saw this movie, which was back uh, in college, uh, our dorm had a movie night where we watched this movie. Uh, and... Uh, Back then, I would have said, oh, no, that seems like that would be way too fast. But now, as we've talked about this movie being somewhat prescient, I don't even think it would take 20 years for us to get (laughs) to to this point. I think the world would fall apart much faster. Uh, And it kind of sets up an interesting thing with uh, with Theo that, like you said, he survives because he doesn't care. Uh, And that uh, is sort of a commentary on the world that, you know, the people who don't care do seem to, you know, get to carry on with their lives well, more. Than the you kind of need do. some detachment and in order to just navigate this world when things get this bad. You know what I right. mean? Like you can't let you can't and, let it get to you, basically. And but there's it's a fine line because what we see is like yes, you can't let it get to you, otherwise you won't survive. But then there's there's Theo has crossed the line to not only does he not care, but he's incapable of caring at this point. Yeah. He, you know, it's, it's not an active decision anymore. He just, he can't do it. Uh, so it, it does, I I think, sets the movie up at a very low, low, low point. Uh, and as a fan of optimism, as you know, I, I frequently am in our movies, uh, <laughs> it sets you off at such a low point that I you, you kind of get to enjoy where Theo goes more. And so that's one of the reasons that, despite this movie being very sad, it still resonates with me in a very positive way. Hugo, you got anything on this opening? I think scene? it's. I think it's. It's. I think the societal collapse is actually quite prescient. Like, just look at. You know, I, I feel like it, the movie is kind of a veiled meta- metaphor for things that are happening in our world that might bring us to collapse. Like, I, I don't think it's so far fetched to say there's some metaphor for climate change as well going on in the film. Like, it's sort of this slow crisis that we know about that might be one of the reasons that humanity crumbles on itself and we're kind of just not really doing anything about it and you know and i think until it becomes an actual crisis we're not 
really going to do anything. Like, and, and, and I think things getting much worse while at the same time uh, sort of right-wing nationalist um, um, governments uh, gain power and take away people's rights and blame it on the immigrants and put them in cages is not completely far-fetched and i think it's not fiction it's not it's fiction, not fiction anymore and so and i believe it like like to me if something like imagine if covid wasn't i mean covid was huge but imagine if covid was oh now half the population of earth is is at risk of death and and in some ways this is that because if nobody is born as people die off like the population will go down very 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 quickly and it, it and i i believe it i believe in that crisis there would be you know there would be demagogues who say oh this is not happening and there would be you know we see the the sort of religious zealot zealot religious groups who believe oh this is a punishment from god and we have to pray and give up on all technology or whatever it is and that'll fix it and and you know and in, in the end i also believe that in some ways it would be kind of a slow mundane death where you yeah. still kind of just go to the office and and go yeah. to work and then go back home and then slowly it kind of Everything ends, but a, a great detail. In some ways, it's so believable. A great detail in that opening scene that I didn't mention is that, like, again, the coffee shop that Lucia was in is bombed, and then it cuts the title card, like you mentioned, Hugo. And then the very next image off the title card is Theo going into work, and like the ringing yeah. from the bomb is still ringing in our ears as he's walking into work. Uh, so good sound design in the movie, but like the fact that like he goes to work after almost dying in a coffee shop bombing is very indicative of like where we're at. Again, it kind of indi- indicates yeah. that these bombings are routine. You know, the fact that it just—it's part of his commute. Part of his commute to work is almost dying in a bomb, but he still goes to work because, like, like, what else? What else are you gonna you do? Know, <laughs> like, refugees from cages throwing stuff at the train. He just kind—he's kind, of, he's kind mm-hmm. of used yeah. to it. And like, the yeah. reason why he's able to get out of work that day is because he goes to his boss and he's like, "Oh, actually, I'm quite tra- traumatized by this celebrity death." And yeah, not idea, the yeah. fact that he was almost bombed from a coffee shop. That's yeah. There's a mundaneity to it's it. It's so that, sad. That seems believable, <laughs> you know. Yeah, if he tells his tells his boss, "Hey, I was almost, I almost died in a coffee shop bombing," the boss would be like, "So yeah. what? Go back to your desk." But saying I'm affected that's, that's by the Diego's death, like, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. that gets him out of work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, come on, the guy was a wanker, as he tells Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> um. So good. So I kind of want to jump into the uh, Grizz kind of already talked about it, and you were talking about it too, the sociological um, uh, demise, the collapse uh, in the movie. And I kind of just alluded to the fact that, like, the bombings are routine, you know, the fact that he goes to work <laughs> after the bombing, and, like, he tells, he speaks to his friend Jasper, played by Michael Caine, in the next scene, you know, says it's, like, the third bombing in a month or something like that, and, like, they're, they're so casual about, like, oh, I wonder who could have done this bombing. Like, I think it was the government. I think it was the Freedom Fighters, you know, blah, blah, blah. The fish. Yeah, the fishes, as you know, as they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, but like they, they talk about who could have bombed this coffee shop, like they're talking about the weather, you know, like yeah. that's basically the the tone they take talking about it. Which again, the casualness is, indicates that this is common, and that's again good good uh, subtle world view, world building. You know, talking about things that are kind of happening just outside the frame of the movie. Um, and again, as he's talking to Jasper uh, in the car, they're passed by a bus full of refugees or fuji fujis as they're called in the movie, and. Um, you know, as Theo gets off the train and, like, walks home, he, again, passes people in cages, like, dozens of people in cages, guarded by, you know, soldiers with, with big guns and dogs, etc. Um, and as Hugo alluded, on the train, there's a, like, a 
a TV screen on the train that like gives, I guess, what you call British propaganda, which is that uh, basically every government in the world has fallen. And, and the text says only Britain soldiers on. And um, I always find that very ironic because it is, you know, a, a nationalistic pride in like, you know, they're basically saying like the, the world fell into chaos, but we have order here. You know, we have civility yeah. here. And like they don't have civility there. They have, you know, the the barbaristic the barbarism they must employ in order to maintain their quote unquote civility is not worth the civility. And so the it's it's majorly ironic to like proudly, you know, broadcast your quote unquote civility like that when you're, you know <laughs> undeserved yep, pride. That I is think. again something that we see echoed in the real world constantly. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> At every level, like even like the movie is happened before the big refugee crisis of uh, sort of 2015 and those years in, in mm-hmm. Europe. But refugee camps at borders of countries in, in Libya and in the south of Italy and, and, and Greece, where people live in very poor conditions and are kind of kept there because governments in Europe have not updated, like they haven't allowed them to get asylum in their country. And so they're stuck there for ever and they might be you know taken from their homes in italy and brought there like that's a thing that is going on right now and it you know it's kind of our society is built on that separation on that border that we create on these immigrant people who are just kind of looking for refuge from situations of war but the movie makes it larger because the collapse that is happening in the world is so big that it's from everywhere but yeah there's no way to run to collapsing societies there is no refuge exactly collapsing societies are happening and refugees are escaping to you know the west and the west in many ways is reacting not in such a different way from what is happening in this movie so it's i don't know in some ways it's too real yeah but what's interesting is that you know the the contrast between how certain people are living like again we don't see how anybody's living in other countries but assume presumably it's pretty bad like it's quite possible mm-hmm. that like the war zone we see at the end of this movie is like that's kind of the default situation everywhere possibly um which is why so many people are flooding to the uk to try to again live yeah. some kind of normalcy and it's interesting least, that you know. we a lot of the refugees are from european countries like we get there's an yeah. italian guy at one point there's many spanish people there's there's i think there's a, a, a in the war zone at the end there's a group that passes with french flags and singing the marseillaise so like it, it, the whole of europe also is in a islamic like group that. too in the in the war zone the islamic group, um, yeah. yeah um but like so there's presumably a large contrast between how the uk is living in the rest of the world but there's also like contrast within the uk itself like the scene where theo goes to see his cousin who lives in like the you know the rich the part, of town. part of town yeah and in there's a great shot of he's in like a he's in like a, a car like a, a nice car be, being driven by a a driver and like uh there's a POV shot of the car there's cameras on the hood of the car driving through like a slum basically and then there's another <laughs> shot of like theo in the car and the cameras just outside it so you can see the reflections of the people in like the window and they're you know living in hard times and then they basically go through like a giant gate and then they go through the then they go into like the 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 part of town where people are ignoring what's going on outside the walls and outside the country basically um including theo's cousin and um you know the the scene some sort of high level government official some kind of diplomat of some sort yeah. yeah and collects art he's um grizz what do you got sorry well and you know 
I do want to say it's tough to talk about this movie without being overtly political, you know, sure. <laughs> because yeah. this is a overtly political movie. Uh, but I just I can't help but think about and notice that, uh, you know, again, this is prescient about the wall that, you know, President Trump proposed and started building on you know our southern border here in the United States. It's whenever there's a crisis in the world, it's the wealthy that want to build a wall to separate people where, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so it's again, I, I'm getting some prescience from this movie again that, you know, here we are, you know, we're going to pretend everything's okay within this wall. And that's what, it, you know, what we kind of do in the United States as well. Let's build, let's build a wall and we'll pretend that everything's okay on this side of it. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what's the final line of the scene between Theo and his cousin? Do you remember? You know I don't. Go ahead. Because <laughs> I try not well, to think about it. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, again, Theo's cousin, like, collects all this art, which I have a, a comment on in a second. But, um, and Theo says, like, why? In 100 years, we'll all be dead, and there'll be no one around to look at this. Like, how do you ration that? And he says, it's it's easy. I just, I just don't think about it. And that's quite the luxury to be able to just mm-hmm. not think about the problems facing millions of people hundreds of millions of people really and but you are you know in your little walled off tower surrounded by michelangelo and lagrenica and good for you Sl- I, I, i'm sorry if i mispronounced this guy's name slavov zizek who is a slovenian philosopher and critic i believe he's on the blue uh the dvd extra given like a little spiel about children men this quote that i from him i thought was very good and i'm quoting him now i think the film gives the best diagnosis of ideological despair of late capitalism of a society without history this i think is the true despair of the film the true infertility is the lack of meaningful historical experience and that's why i like this elegant point in the film of importing all the works of art all those classical statues are there but they are deprived of the world they are totally meaningless because what does it mean to have a statue of michelangelo it only works when it signals a certain world and when that is lacking it's nothing so he's basically saying he's kind of equating infertility to like um i guess i'm kind of to expand what he's saying like infertility kind of eliminates the future of humanity and therefore kind of negates the past of humanity like what's the what's the What's the significance What's the of point Michelangelo? Of a future? You know, What's like, the point of a past without a future? Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, it, beautiful works of art are kind of meaningless without context. And without a past, you have no context. So Theo's cousin is just surrounding himself with like once meaningful things that are now meaningless. They're also meaningless when they're not a some sort of historical document of, of a time in, in place. Like, Because they can't be. Because yeah. if humanity is going to end, as he says, like, Nobody's going to see this, so they're not documenting anything. And also, yeah. seeing David in some government room in the UK or apartment of a government official or whatever it is is not like it doesn't mean anything if you take it out of the context where it was made. Like seeing David in 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 the piazza where it is in Florence it has a meaning to it because of what it is, but because it's a document of that time. When you've you've erased the future and the past, and so these things become kind of meaningless. I didn't think about it until just now, but uh, it, it is kind of funny, like, you know, this collecting things. What's the point of, of collecting th- these things? And I'm thinking about, like, right here next to me on my shelf, <laughs> I just have boxes of Pokemon cards and all the Beanie Babies I had as a kid. What was the point of that? Well, you know, College, you your college fund. Cards. He collects, yeah, he collects David <laughs> yeah. of Michelangelo. That's, you know, yeah, I mean, everyone has their own hobby. 
My, mine's a little cheaper. <laughs> but there's also there's also <laughs> an unspoken much. thing. There's an unspoken commentary in this in this scene in this exchange where you know again, Theo's cousin talks about like saving the art in Madrid, and Theo says, "Well, a lot of people died too. Like it was a tragedy for the art. It was a bigger tragedy <laughs> for the people." Like in the face of crisis, Theo's cousin's instinct is to quote unquote save the artifacts of humanity and ignore the fact that humanity itself is dying and that's like it's yeah. he's focusing on the on the symbols of of humanity and not humanity itself which again is is very telling about and, his priorities i think and also like specifically stealing a piece of art that represents resistance against a, a dictatorial force while being yeah. a government official of a dictatorial force there's, there's an irony yes. there as well yeah it's poetry. Yeah, like, it rhymes. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned Grenica, and you're probably right that like Madrid probably went through a Grenica-like thing. Yeah, and that's how he ended up with Grenica in his Again. in yep. his kitchen, basically. Um, I mentioned uh, so Hugo. You also pointed out something that's happening as they have the exchange about it's simple. I just don't think about it. They're standing at a window, and there's some iconography yeah. outside the window that you pointed out. Basically, the from the outside of the government building i assume it's a government building but it, i guess it's where this person lives like mm-hmm. we see this very industrial type of building like smoke feels stacks, very yeah. industrial mm-hmm. england yeah. uh, and when they're talking outside the window we can see this floating pig outside mm-hmm. and these are images that are basically directly taken from the cover of the album animals by pink floyd which they mm-hmm. made in the 70s but it, it's kind of an imagery that represented at the time sort of a the, the, the message of the album was that uh, basically the UK government was becoming a little too dystopian and tyrannical for them at that time in history. And I think it's just a kind of a visual reminder. I'm, I mean, I'm sure just it's just that Quaron was a fan of uh, Pink Floyd and just wanted to give them some imagery that had sort of a social political message that fit with the movie. Uh, I just found that very interesting to see. And it's like, at the same time, you have King Crimson playing, I think, the song. It's... Uh, Welcome to the Crim- Crim- uh, something about the Crim- Crimson King, which is also another album that, that that this group King Crimson made that was about protesting sort of mm. um, authoritarian uh, tendencies in the Conservative Party at the time in the UK in the seventies. And so there's some something related to that that he wants to bring in the film. That if you don't know about it, it doesn't really take away or add anything. You might think the pig is. Maybe a reference to Animal Farm, um, you know, yeah. George Orwell and Dystopia. And that which kind may of have thing, been Pink it, Floyd's just, reason for including it, possibly even. Which might might have been Pink Floyd's uh, point of reference, yeah. But it, yeah, it, yeah it, I just find that visually interesting and, and a very cool choice. There is a lot of things like that where there's like allusions to um, either pop culture or famous art, like in the background and stuff. Like I said, like things kind of happening on the fringe. Um like mm-hmm. in this scene, in the scene where he Theo sees his cousin who has all the art, he stands in front of statue of David and references how he couldn't save La Pieta, um, mm-hmm. that was destroyed the bombings, I guess. And then later in the movie, Theo walks past a mother holding presumably her dead son in a allu- a very clear allusion to La Pieta. Yeah, La Pieta. Um, yeah. So there's stuff like that all around this movie. Real quick, before we move on from the sociological collapse of it all, um, speaking of allusions to things, uh, when Theo and Key and... Uh, who's Key's character name? Uh, Miriam. Now. Miriam, Miriam, thank you. Uh, when they go in, they're on a bus and they go through the refugee camp Bex Hill as they 
it, w- the camera stays inside the bus, so we only see things like passing through the bus window, but we see a lot of um, refugees uh, on their knees with black bags over their heads. Uh, ag- again, people in cages surrounded by soldiers with big guns and dogs. There's actually a line of dead bodies, presumably refugees, uh, on the ground. And there is a Abu Ghraib reference. Um, in one of the cages, there is a presumably refugee standing in like a sack, basically, with a uh, a black bag over their head that's got a pointy, got, comes to a point at the top, and he's holding his arms out like the most famous image out of Abu Ghraib from 2005 in the uh, uh, torture camp in Iraq. So, you know, not very, I mean, it's, they don't like yeah. hang too much of a lantern on. Again, you just kind of see it through the window of a bus as they're driving by. But like, it's, if you, if you're looking for it, it's hard to miss. And like, it's very clear that's the illusion they're going for, which, um, again, speaks to, uh, the dehumanization and what people are willing to do at the first, you know, when, when the chips are down, how quickly, you know, this happens, you know, um, cause it happened in real mm-hmm. life and it, it was happening in the movie. Um, do you see the Abu Ghraib reference, Grizz, or no? I hadn't noticed about? it, no. Uh, but I do you know, do, now, do you know yes, what I'm talking about? It. Okay. Yes. Um, and then the last thing about the sociological collapse is, uh, the human project, the boat that the, again, as Hugo alluded, we're not sure if the human project is even real, but they're like the utopian scientists who are going to save us all, if they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, Theo doesn't believe in them, at least the start of the movie. And then, uh, at the end of the movie... They show up, and uh, what's the name of their boat, Hugo? The Tomorrow, yeah, which is telling. Tomorrow. I think it's a and metaphor. They're trying yeah, to do, that, yeah. That yeah. Uh, key thing <laughs> in the boat, and then a big boat called Tomorrow comes out of the fog to save her. You know, so, you know, that's nice. Yeah. Um, anything else in the but sociological we'll collapse? The uh, Grizz, anything else? I mean, we'll that? probably come back into some of the sociological stuff as we're talking about some of the other features of the yeah, movie. You kind of have uh, to. And yeah. I... And I do really want to dive into the next thing we have here about the Wonners. Let's talk about the filmmaking. This, yeah, yeah. Because as great as as this the imagery is in the movie, and it is fantastic. There's so much symbolism. It's also just a fantastically well made movie. Uh, so you know, it let's is. dive into those Wonners, yeah. Josh. <laughs> so Alfonso Cuarón is um, uh, one of the best filmmakers we have. Not, I mean. It, it, we're about to talk about like the, the craft on display, but honestly, he's just like an incredible storyteller in general, not just, not just with the technical prowess, but um, regardless, he is kind of known and the cinematographer Emmanuel Lebesky is also pretty known for these uh, long takes and complicated long takes. In fact, Emmanuel Lebesky, his, his first cinematography Oscar was for gravity. His next collaboration with Alfonso Cuaron, his second and third were for movies with um, Alfonso Niartu, including Birdman, which is, film mm-hmm. to look like one shot and then the revenant which also has like you know four or five minute sequences of long takes in it so like you know it's kind of it's kind of their thing their shtick a bit um and there's like a number of really great long shots in this i think the three big ones are the car attack towards the end of act one um the birth scene towards the start of act three and then the war zone in act three um, I think those are the big ones they're talking about. I think each of those is at least three minutes long. Uh, one of them, I think the Warzone scene is like six minutes long. Um, but it's not just those. Like, there's other ones in it. Like, the like I mentioned, the opening scene in the coffee shop was like, you know, it's maybe a 30 or 60 to 90 second long take, which includes uh, Theo. We follow Theo out of a coffee shop in real time and then spin around. The camera spins around him and then it blows up, you know, 15, 20 seconds after he walked out the door, which I thought was good. 
Um, there's a scene where uh, Theo like learns that Key is pregnant when they're like at this uh, fish's hideout and learns that they intend to kill him the next morning and learns that they also killed Julian, Julian Moore's character. So he, they have like a daring escape where he has to like steal the keys from the fish's other cars and then jumpstart their own car to make the escape. That that's, that's a very subtle one where there's no cut. And it's, I think lasts like two or three minutes. Grizz, what would you want to talk about with these things? Like, which, which well, so I, I, it's just like, like I said, the imagery is fantastic in this movie, but I think what makes this uh, a standout film, you know, beyond the content is the way it's shot and it, it, it just like reminds me of 1917, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where you have these incredibly long takes. And I find myself as a fan of movies watching these long takes and getting increasingly impressed the longer the take, even even if they have some artificial, you know, cuts in there. Which they do. Uh, these all do. Yeah, we'll, we can which talk they about do. that. They do. Yeah, of course. Uh, but uh, it's still like, wow, they're just, they're, they're able to continue to build this and just, the forethought. I, I just find myself thinking about how much forethought there has to go into the staging of each scene, and the production that goes into lining up all of these. Because these takes are, you know, it's not like one long take in a small place. They're going through massive buildings or huge landscapes, and the just the forethought it takes on the part of the director and the cinematographer and and all the different you know teams working together on a movie to piece all this together in such a way that it feels like you're just there watching it is incredible. Yeah. And I do find, especially in the last uh, um, one or uh, where, where they're, you know, trying to escape the war zone. I, from there's a moment where uh, blood splashes on mm-hmm. the camera lens and that blood is maintained for the rest of that shot, uh, which, you know, it's just, it's a little like, moment of like wow i can't believe that they kept that all the way through and it made me feel like i was another member of their little adventuring party yeah. that i was there with it. I, it's yeah. so it, it brings you into the movie so well so a, a number of things uh i think that the war zone scene that you're talking about i read on wikipedia that uh i think every time they wanted to sh- i think that took like two weeks to plan and every time they wanted to get that sequence shot it took five hours of setup because the scope and the scale of this sequence is mind-boggling. Like you said, he's going in, 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 in and out of a bus, in and out of various buildings. Uh, there, He covers, like, several blocks, like city blocks of ground during this shot. And, and, um, and there are also, like, practical explosions. People happening. are being Things shot are everywhere. There's so many squibs yeah. and bombs and explosions and, and blood, like you just said. And um, honestly, like, that sequence is, like... I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but like one of the most dazzling pieces of filmmaking I've ever seen in a movie it and is. like you ever 100%. will see in a movie. Like it's just, again, the, the mm-hmm. scale and like the chaos, but like the precision, like it's a chaotic scene, but there's obviously precision in the filmmaking to create the chaos on screen. You know, it's, it's a, it's a very precise chaos. Uh, bullets just like ricocheting around Theo as he's trying to make his escape. And another thing you said, uh, Grizz is the the tension and like a long take like this, I think creates tension. Like the, the longer you go without a cut, the more tense it becomes. And because there are people being shot and there are bullets ricocheting over Clive Owen's head every five seconds, like, it gets more and more and more tense. And it, like, becomes kind of unbearable, honestly, um, eventually. Um, and I think the same thing is, uh, can be said about the car attack in the middle, of, in the end of Act 1, where uh, the camera is mm-hmm. inside 
a car as they're driving and then suddenly they're attacked by uh some people hiding in the trees and uh julian moore gets shot and um but the camera never leaves the car which shocked the crap out of me by the way yeah like, yeah I, I saw her as one of the top build you know actors on the yeah. film and, and then they kill her like basically at the by 25 minutes in 30 minutes in yeah yeah <laughs> Um, I was like, but, oh no. <laughs> what, what's so impressive to me about these as well is that they they are some of the most dazzling filmmaking you'll ever see. But at the same time, the they have very, very, very strong storytelling throughout them. Yeah, like they're never exactly. just yeah. just doing a cool scene. Like the, the Warzone scene, we go through several different little setups in it. Like first the fishes, they're running, getting out of this home, this old Russian home in this Hex Hill and Bex Hill and going towards the boat. And then the fishes catch up with him and they take away Key and the baby. And we get this moment where Luke uh, says, oh, this is the uprising. And you haven't e- they haven't even seen the baby. They're going to be galvanized and mm-hmm. they're going to kill Theo. But Theo gets away. So he goes through another part of the war zone and he follows them. And he eventually meets up again with them. And, th- and at this point, the fishes have all been defeated. Like... There's a, there's a whole little story being told. It's not just them going through a war zone and, you know, the story, the, the scene could just be they're going through the whole war zone to get to the boat. And that would be an incredible, beautiful sequence of filmmaking. But they tell, like, this little story where we have very different little things in it. Like the car attack scene, for example, as well, it starts out as, like, this l- sort of lighter-toned comedic beat where... Yeah. Theo and Julian, despite not having seen each other for twenty years, like they're kind of they're kind of flirting with each other. They're doing this ball trick that they had that she said, "Oh, I haven't been able to do it with anyone else." And they're kind of kissing mm. and like you know, kind of rekindling what the passion that they had for each other before. And then suddenly, it you know, we get this car, yeah, yeah, cutting out, cutting off their road, and so instantly it becomes more of a, an action sequence, and then it becomes a horrific death, and all of that in, in a wanna. And so you go to different tones, different beats of storytelling. And, and then that's and then why it, they're so strong in the movie. Well, this one ends with um, the cops pulling them over and Chiwetel Edu, Chiwetel oh, yeah. Edu's four character getting out of the car and shooting the two cops. And so, mm-hmm. the, so it's, it goes from like flirtatious and lighthearted to uh, scary and horrific to thriller. And then it becomes confusing. Like what the hell is going yeah. on? Why did you kill these cops? What are we doing here? Like, what is this? You know? And, Theodore doesn't know what's going on. We There's don't know what's going on. a bizarre catharsis with that confusion. Like, when he gets out and, and shoots them, suddenly I felt, like, a relief of that tension that's like, well, everything's, like, it, 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 I'm confused by what's happening, but somehow that's uh, relaxing versus, like, knowing that we're being chased and that people are going to die and all that stuff. It's a bizarre relief. Well, that's also, like, the end of the tension in the scene, basically, because like, they're no longer being pursued. Yeah. Like, they, they're getting away. I mean, they had to go through some horrific things to get there, but they are not going to get away. Um, real quick, though, the, the, they had to, like, design a, a camera, wig, camera rig never used before, specifically for the shot, because, like, the camera is kind of, like, on a, on a 360-degree swivel inside the car. Like, it turns all, you know, every direction. And uh, if you watch, like, some behind-the-scenes stuff, like, the actors had to, like, their seats were designed to, like, drop them back so that they could be not in the shot <laughs> and the camera can move around the car a little so bit. So like they're the like, camera. They, yeah, exactly. The, the actors are constantly like ducking up and down. And also, as we said, capturing a wide spectrum of emotions throughout the scene. In addition to like squibs and a motorcycle stunt and a gunfire and the windshield cracking, like a lot, there's a lot of stuff going on in this shot. Um, that again is uh very impressive. Grizz we got. 
I just had one other thing I wanted to say on the Warzone one in particular was we talked about like they get captured briefly by the fishes, right? And then they, mm-hmm. they take off uh, Key and the baby. But then all hell breaks loose again. And one of the things I really appreciate in this shot is that there are members of the fishes that we, we saw earlier in the movie that they're, we, they're not necessarily like named characters or certainly not named in a way that you'd remember them, but they're recognizable. Uh, in their character design and when they get killed and they almost all get killed during this oneer, it's never like the center focus of the scene it's they're off to the side and so adds an air it adds it's in the periphery and it adds this air of like they're inconsequential as it turns Mm -hmm. out like you know they they looked like they were going to be important characters but in this hellscape no one is an important character. That's why the camera doesn't focus on them when they're blowing up. I don't know. I, I found I found that very interesting as well. You know the guy with dreads is Charlie Hunnam? Did you know that? Yeah, see, exactly. What? That yeah. blew my mind. That's yeah. <laughs> Charlie Hunnam plays Patrick, the guy with dreads, um, who huh. nearly that, that's shoots That's my one complaint Theo is apparently in dystopian yeah, future, in dystopian future, there's going to be a lot more white people with dreads. <laughs> I'd buy it. That's the real horror of the movie, you know? Know, honestly. <laughs> um, something you just alluded to, Chris, I want to mention is uh, this is after the one, sh- the long oneer. It's like you know maybe thirty seconds after um, the oneer takes Theo into the building where Key is. That's being you know where a firefight is taking place between the refugee freedom fighters and the British government, and um, he collects Key, and then the crying, her crying baby, like basically creates a ceasefire between the two fighting factions and there is a despite the complete hellishness it took to get into this building it is completely peaceful to get out of the building in stark contrast to the wonder to get in and it's because everyone hears a crying baby and just stops fighting and just stands there to marvel at it for about 30 40 seconds before they start fighting again but like you know they're they're taking knees and and doing the sign of the cross and people are like yeah, reaching it's a messiah out when it, thing. it yes it very messianic um and very beautiful and but you know yeah. the, the fact that it's temporary is also telling the fact that like you know this brief moment of hope um creates peace but then the peace doesn't last and they just start fighting again um i thought that was good uh anything else on the long shots or the filmmaking anything like that in the movie before we move on um we didn't mention the birth one but th- there's a yeah, moment in it that was so good for me where the it it lingers for a moment on this baby having you know been born, but there's it lingers long enough before the baby starts screaming that for us I think it lingers enough for you to think oh my god is this baby stillborn, stillborn. like did did, did yeah. he not make it and that and then he starts crying and I think that's such a genius small beat that adds like it just gives you this moment of oh my god if this was all for nothing it would be so hopeless and then the baby cries and it is. The crying baby becomes, you know, the crying baby is something that in a, in the real world we kind of see as maybe something annoying that, you know, oh, you're a new parent and you have to wake up at night because your baby is crying. But it like, is a, in a this baby's movie, cry is evolutionarily designed to get under your skin. Exactly. And pester you. Like we are supposed to respond in a certain way to a crying baby. Yes. In this movie, it becomes the symbol of hope and the crying baby then becomes what allows them to go through the whole war zone without anyone touching them because everyone is just so oh my god this is we have to let them through we don't they don't even know where they're going and what the point of them passing through is but 
it, it's they just so know you, you can't kill this baby. <laughs> yeah, it, right. it strikes them so much that they just well, let them go. Real quick, like uh, it's only when I was like looking up stuff about the long shots movie that I even realized that the burst scene was a long shot because I didn't like the first couple times I watched this, I didn't like clock that even because it's kind of you know you watch like oh yeah, there's not a cut yeah, happening. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but your comment about the crying baby, uh, I gotta bring up something that Miriam says to Theo at one point. Uh, she's a, like a, a midwife or presumably, you know, worked in some kind of capacity to help women give birth. Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And, uh, she kind of just like is talking offhand about how, like, uh, how, how people realized the crisis was happening was that she was at work and looked at her calendar and realized that they didn't have any any appointments in the next like seven months because there just wasn't anybody pregnant and she called all of her obstetrician friends and they also didn't have any appointments and that's when they started to realize oh shit nobody's pregnant but uh the quote that she says that i admire so much is she says um as the sounds of the playgrounds faded the despair set in very odd what happens in a world without children's voices and then the um Mm -hmm. i don't know if you guys noticed but the we get a end title card, Children of Men, as the movie ends. Yeah. And before the credits roll, we hear like the voices of, or we hear children's voices over the over the uh, end title card, which is you know again a hopeful it's thing. It's the 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 credits begin with children screaming and, and laughing and playing and mm-hmm. talking, and yeah. at the same time, there's this John Lennon song that is you know the 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 chorus says "Free the people now," so it's kind of giving you both the big messages of the movie together at the same time which i think uh can um segue nicely into theo's arc i mean we, we kind of already talked about all of it but we can just like kind of cover it again briefly just uh on one go mm-hmm. that he uh begins the movie can we can we briefly just sorry just talk about like clive owen this guy yeah. was in a string of really good movies and then he kind of just went away yeah. where the hell is he what happened like know, he man. made, got... like he he was in a minor role in Gosford Park. He was the main one of the main bad guys in the Bourne Identity. He did a King Arthur movie. He did Closer, Sin City. He did Inside Man, another really good movie. And then he did Children of Men. And then he kind of drifted away, doing like straight to what would used to be straight to DVD or straight to streaming. And now I guess thrillers that nobody's ever heard of. Like I don't know what happened to him. He was also recently in on Apple TV. Uh, show with Julianne Moore, I think. Uh, Interesting. The, uh, it's a Stephen King uh, movie, Lisey's story. I think it's sure. Julianne Moore. But you know what I mean? Like he never. He was in big movies at the time. Yeah, he, he was. Of... He was in Sin City too. Like his his 2004 to 2007. Yeah. It's pretty pretty. Uh, yeah, it's impressive. Pretty, uh, yeah, a lot of good stuff in there. And yeah, I don't know what happened. I mean, he was on the Nick, the Steven Soderbergh show on I think Cinemax or something like that. Mm. That I think was very uh, well regarded, but. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know what happened to him. He's been like, in we... things like like he was in Valerian and the City of a Thousand Thingies uh, or whatever. Good, he was in Gemini him. Man <laughs> recently, but like yeah, Gemini Man. Yeah, it's a rough rough go. I think he's really good in rough... this. I think he's really he's, good at he, this. He is very good at this. Yeah, this is two consecutive weeks of uh, leading men in the mid two thousands that kind of tapered off for some reason. I don't know what happened to Aaron Heckard. I don't know what happened to Clive Owen. Um, yeah, he's very good in this though. Uh, as we said, he begins the movie with a detached attitude towards Babe Diego and therefore a detached attitude towards the crumbling of humanity, uh, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and like in his second scene with Jasper, he's very dismissive of the human project and doesn't think it actually exists. And uh, as he says to Jasper, quote, even if they discovered the cure for infertility, doesn't matter. Too late. World went to shit. Know what? It was too late before the infertility thing happened, for fuck's sake. Um, so, you know, he's 
he's pretty down. <laughs> he doesn't have a very positive outlook. Grizz, what do you got? Well, I wanted to say at, at, at this point, uh, Jasper mentions about, uh, you know, how he used to be more political. He used to be, mm-hmm. used to talk about it more. Julian Moore uh, eventually says that funny. too, yeah. Which is funny because uh, we, we catch glimpses of it, you know, as the story grows where like, you know, the flashes of the old Theo come back and he can't resist talking about how things could be fixed or could be improved, which I kind of find an interesting parallel to uh, Hugo, honestly. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, I find that Hugo is frequently very depressed about you know, politics and the world and all that stuff. But he also never stops talking about how it can be improved, which to me, always, like yeah. you know, we joke about Hugo being a pessimist, but that's actually a very optimistic uh, <laughs> thing. Uh, and I, I see that uh, in Theo here as well, that you know he, he does keep coming back. And despite his outward appearance of not caring and how dismissive he is of the events of the world around him and his heart of hearts, he does have a little glimmer of hope. And that's what grows throughout this movie. Uh, like when are you, when, when, what are you talking about specifically about first, the glimmers? Like, what are you talking about specifically? So like, like, like when he's talking with Jasper, he, he, he there's like, I forget what he says exactly, but there's like a one sentence where he like, you know, kind of like he goes off for a little bit. He's like, sorry, I, I didn't mean to, you know, you know, go off like that. It's like, you know, like that. It's one of those moments where he's, you know, he gets political and he's talking about it and he actually cares and you can tell he cares, but then he tamps it back down because he's trying to survive in a world where he's not supposed to care. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's interesting that like when, when Julian and her men like capture him, it's like the inside incident in the movie. She says, I don't remember the exact quote, but she says like, you used to be interested in politics. And he says that was before I'm a lot more successful now, which again is kind of a reference yeah. back to like, <laughs> Not caring about the issues of the world is a luxury of the rich. And um, mm-hmm. the fact that he got successful enough, he can kind of detach himself a little bit. Sorry, continue, though. The other thing I want to talk about you have here in the notes is the, his ironic sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, this movie is funny at times, which, you know, you wouldn't expect given the state of the world. But on the other hand, it is kind of perfect because humor is a mechanism that people use to survive horrible situations you know people who may, who enjoy dark humor uh if you have to laugh at it otherwise you're going to cry right and that's and that's a very common sentiment for people in, in the world and so i think that's something that's very good that they use for theo is that he does make little offhanded jokes and things like that and jasper in particular who's sitting here getting high while the world burns uh he good for he, you jasper he is a, you know he's still trying to find things that bring him uh, joy and you know telling jokes or telling people to pull his finger and stuff like that uh is again a, a strawberry a, a cough little <laughs> My, michael kane <laughs> is so good in this michael kane. He is. like he, he's just so good. basing it b- basing his performance off his friend john lennon a guy he knew That's incredible john lennon yes <laughs> that he mentioned in weird movies well, yeah <laughs> it's one of those weird things to think about like you don't think about those they that they definitely overlapped in time quite a bit yeah he was alfie yeah were, the height of the beatles yeah they were absolutely. they were good friends <laughs> hey real quick um can i ask about something can i ask about something that i, I didn't put in the outline what do you guys make of theo and animals he clearly has like an affinity animals have an affinity for theo and there's like a lot of moments throughout the movie that suggests this like jasper's cat and jasper's dog both seem to really like theo 
uh, when he arrives at the fish's hideout. Um, the dogs like like him, and even one of the fishes says, they like you, they don't like anyone. And then um, when they're discussing what to do with Key, whether they should take her to a doctor or take her to the coast, like there's a cat climbing on Theo's leg. Um, when he goes to the abandoned school and await for Sid, like a deer passes in front of him. When he goes into the building during the war zone runner to get Key, like some chickens cross in front of his path. Um, just before the birth scene, when um, the uh, woman takes them into the room where Key is about to give birth, like there's dogs barking outside. That house just like over and over and over and over and over again. We see uh, something about Theo and animals. What do you what do you make of that, Grizz? What do you what do you got? What I get from that is uh, a commentary about how the collapse of the world is something that's being brought about by mankind, uh, and not the animals. The animals, you know, they're not smart enough to know what's happening, right? Uh, and they don't know to you know necessarily fear for their own existence. Uh, the way that humans are. And so I think what, what we're getting from that is uh, because Theo is supposed to be the hope he's, he's going to save, you know, key and going, going to do this. The animal affinity towards him, I think is driving at that, uh, you know, he is uh, part of the natural progression the, the, to save the, the, this world that uh, he's not going to be part of the mechanism that is destroying it is basically what yeah. it is. That's, that's kind of what I think, too. Like, like, uh, so Key trusts Julian, Julian Moore's character, and Julian tells Key to trust Theo. And so she's more trustful of Theo than she is of the fishes because she's got to kind of decide who to trust in this in this situation. And so, like, I think the animals implicitly trusting Theo is kind of like speaking to his natural trustworthiness, you know, and that kind of speaks to why yeah. Key feels an affinity for, towards him. And also, like you said, like, he's kind of like a part of the natural order. Like, I don't think it's an accident that he spends, like, half the movie barefoot, you know, in, in like, a, a more natural state, you know, kind of thing. Um, Hugo, you got anything about this? There's just, like, theories that I have, because it's, it's clearly going yeah, for something. I, I just don't know what. It's something I noticed as well, but I don't know exactly. Like, I think it just I, adds to his likability uh, to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't yeah. think it's... I mean, I'm sure there's some idea behind it, but it's one of those things that could also just be there because Quaron thought it would be interesting that, oh, it could be a character trait that animals like him. And it, well, I don't know, that's, does that's it mean thing. something? Does it explicitly mean something? Or does it, is it something that he added and then he himself found, oh, actually, maybe this has a meaning for me as a person writing this character. But I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I did notice it. Like, there's, there's a very clear thing that you see in the movie. We haven't talked much about Alfonso Quaron, but I, one of the reasons I think he's one of the best storytellers we have is that there's so much intentionality you can read into his movies. Like oh, yeah. he makes the kind of movies where you can study every single shot and every single sequence and like pull things from it. And like kind of he's, he's, he, there's not a wasted second in any of his movies. He's always trying to tell you something, you know? And, um, that's why that's his one, is the best Harry Potter movie. That's why his is the best Harry <laughs> Potter movie. Absolutely. He directed prisoner of Azkaban uh, to those who don't know. Um, but uh, the other thing about the the dog thing or the the animal thing that I thought of is like the British government or the soldiers use dogs to like intimidate and scare the refugees like in multiple sequences. So the fact that like dogs are docile around Theo, I think, is mm -hmm. also kind of uh, indicative of like him being like the savior of these refugees that like, you know, dogs used to attack them. but He can calm the dog, metaphorically speaking. Um, yeah. 
But again, like Corona is clearly going for something, even if you don't know exactly what he is, what he's going for. He's clearly going for something. And like, it's interesting to think about and to talk about and to pull it apart and to try to like figure out mm-hmm. what the message is there. Uh, Grease, you got anything else? I, I agree. Uh, no, no, the, the, that we basically summarized it. Okay. Do we want to like, without going too deep into all the other characters and groups and factions and stuff, um, there's only a few things that I, I added to the outline that I thought was interesting to mention. One is just the character of Jasper. He's he's we mentioned him. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. He's great. But he has a speech at one point in the movie where he's talking about like sort of this this tension between faith and chance, as in like things that happen to you by chance that you have no control over, and faith intended in the sense of having a belief and fighting for something. Like it's it's kind of getting at uh, agency versus determinism in a way and i think that's another theme of the movie that it that, that maybe we haven't talked about but that i feel like that speech is there for a reason and i feel like by the end of the film you're supposed to be thinking about those things and not necessarily having an answer to them like is there a specific reason why key was became pregnant and nobody else could before is uh, you know is is him getting involved with this and eventually maybe saving humanity we don't know uh, is it an action because of his faith or is it just the chance that he happened to meet this girl I, I think the movie is wrestling with that and i think what he's telling you is almost that you can you can control your own faith to some extent you can fight for for good to some extent but also chance and sort of cause causality and randomness has an effect on what happens to the world as well um I just, I don't know, I don't have a definitive idea on this. I just think it's interesting that that speech is told by Jasper, who is this yeah. kooky, goofy character, but at the same time, he's very wise, I think, yeah. uh, in the film. And I think that's more or less at the midpoint of the film. And and I think it, it kind of carried me through the rest of the movie. I was thinking about that tension between faith and chance for the rest of the film. I don't know if you guys noticed any of that. Well, I did, and and I think you're you, you say you don't have a definitive answer, but I think you nailed it. It's that uh, there is it's not an either or. It's not mm. agency or determinism. It's uh, Theo makes the choice. Like at first, he's captured. That was not not something that he decided. Right, that was not his choice. But then he does flip to having agency, and he makes the decision that he's going to get key to the human project, even though he doesn't believe they exist. So that, that is a choice that he actively makes. Uh, and then even after making that choice, it's not like it doesn't flip back to other uh, chances of fate because there are times where, you know, an explosion goes off or, you know, someone gets shot or something like that around him that is not part of his plan at all. Uh, but you have to continue working with, with determinism, with agency, both in concert. And that's what is able to help him get through this whole story and, and deliver key to safety. Yeah. And sometimes he almost has like no choice, but to have faith at some point. Cause like, you know, again, he starts the movie, not believing in the human project and being very dismissive when Jasper mentions them. But then like when he learns key is pregnant and like they're on the run from these people that are trying to kill them. Like what else can he really do? Besides just, like, take her to where he's supposed to take her and hope that the human project is real and we'll meet them there. Because, like, as you, as you have in the outline, Hugo, that he, like, chastises Miriam at one point saying, uh, please tell me you've at least spoken to them in regard to the human yeah. project and, like, their rendezvous point. And, like, she hasn't. <laughs> uh, Julianne Moore did. And she like, had not. 
a few scenes later in the movie as well that that Russian like refugee who's helping them says he's yeah, like human project yeah. real yeah. and he's like better be like he doesn't know yeah, yeah, yeah. like he I yeah, hope yeah, it is exactly. but we'll try anyway you know yeah and by the and end, like, oh. and by the end like we get that he believes but he's also bleeding out on the boat like Mm-hmm. He has kind of yeah. in in a way he has to believe that it was worth something because he's just dying for it otherwise. You, well, you put in the outline stuff about uh, Julian, Luke, and the fishes. Anything on on those guys, Hugo? Do you want to mention? Oh no, I, I think we we've talked we've mentioned them throughout, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's just interesting that it, it's portraying a world that is so broken where even the fishes who would you know basically are fighting for a good cause of, of equality against uh, sort of this totalitarianism with giving uh, immigrants rights. They've, the world is so broken that even they have gone so extreme that they would just want to use the baby it's to, a, it's a to self-defeating as a revolution. symbol, yeah, as a symbol yeah. for the uprising. Like it's, you know, and they're willing to go through very, very horrific means to get what they want. Um, yeah, just because just cause they have a good cause does not mean they're right. That's an important thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're bad guys. Bad people. Um, and also, we didn't talk about Key at all, but I think right. she's delightful. Uh, I think yes. the actor who plays her is is very funny. She she's, has a lot of she has a lot of energy to her. She she her back and forth with with um, Theo is is very entertaining at times and biting at others. And but it, I think it works really well in the film. Like they have the scene where. She's just given birth and, and Theo's like, well, you know, that wasn't that bad, was it? And she's like, yeah, not for you. That, that's a really good scene yeah. that stood out for me. And I really liked her. Um, she's fantastic. She's, and she's, you know, the Mary of the story, right? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's... It referenced in, in very referenced direct directly. ways. Referenced yeah. directly. And I, I love that because, you know, it, it's... the. I think we most people would probably catch on, oh, this is, you know, this is Mary, the baby is the Jesus. You know, it's it's... It's that sort of symbolism, but the fact that you know uh, Theo asks her, "Well, so who who is the baby's father?" and she says, "Oh, I'm a virgin." It's like it's it's humorous and also you know aids the imagery and symbolism so well. I really do think she's fantastic. Uh, and, and of course, she says she's not. She's like, I don't even yeah, know half the says, wankers' names. <laughs> yeah, so she's like, could have been could have been any number of people. Yeah, uh, and uh, so it's but also at the same time, sorry, the first time we see her is in a barn. And she reveals she's pregnant yes, for the first time. Yes, she reveals she's, like, pregnant. she's pregnant. You know, the movie surrounded is surrounded by animals. This movie is having the cake and eating it too, with that symbolism. I think. Yeah, well, I think it's uh, drawing a nice parallel of having belief, but not letting your belief drive you to do ill. Sure. Uh, and you know, and, and that's what Key is. You know, Key has faith that you know her baby is going to uh, help humanity. And they just have to reach the human project for that to happen. That, and that's faith. But she's not going to let other people take advantage and, you know, use it for nefarious purposes. Uh, I, I, I think it's really fantastic blend of faith is important, but, you know, but so is not. Don't let your faith Blind let you be you. duped. Yeah. yeah. Real quick about key. A couple of things. Number one, uh, it's meaningful that she's black. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron yes. said that was like partially a reference to the fact that humanity began in Africa, and so the mm-hmm. rebirth of humanity is also beginning with a person of African descent. And it's also meaningful that she is a refugee in the UK. She's an immigrant, and that's part. She's an immigrant, exactly. That's part of why the 
the fishes want to, I mean, yeah, they want to use her baby as like a symbolic rallying cry for the uprising, but they also know that if they take her to a doctor, the British government, as Chiwetel Ejiofor says, the British government would never recognize the first human birth in 18 years coming from a refugee because of their horrible treatment of refugees. Um, so it's meaningful that it's a refugee that is saving humanity despite being demonized by this government. Grizz, what do you got? I, I just wanted to point out uh, her name. Uh, the actress is Claire Hope Ashety. Uh, Not been in much after this. Want to make sure we, hasn't yeah. been in a whole lot, but like she was, no. she was excellent in this. And I, yes. you know, as long as we're talking about her character, I want to give her proper credit. <laughs> While you have the cast up, can you tell me who plays Miriam? I can. Yes, Pam Ferris played Miriam. Do you know where you recognize Pam Ferris from? If she's you grew up in, in the nineties, she's Miss Trunchable <laughs> in Matilda. She makes Bruce yeah. eat the cake. She almost kills. She almost decapitates Matilda with a javelin ball heavy ball thing i don't know um yeah great seeing pam ferris being like a, a nice character um yeah. anything else in the on the side characters and she's also evil aunt marge in uh, she also is prisoner evil aunt marge oh, in yes. alfonso Caron's prisoner of azkaban yes i wonder if that's why he she's ca- the one who gets uh, blown up at this. the beginning of the yeah. movie yeah. <laughs> yes aunt marge. so the ending do like, mm-hmm. as we, I mentioned it before, but like the ending is kind of ambiguous. We don't get to see a lab or we don't get to see, you don't even get to see the boat like being called tomorrow, which would be a very big indication. Like, do we think it's a hopeful ending? Do we think yes. the human project exists? Um, yes. That's it, I guess. Yes. We yes. do. I think well, it's a hopeful so, ending. Real quick though. Like, so what happens is Theo and Key escape the war zone. They get on a rowboat row out to a buoy, which is the rendezvous point with the human project's boat. And then uh, Key realizes there's blood in the boat, and it's because Theo got shot, unbeknownst to her. And unbeknownst to us, really. We didn't. It's not like a... I think you you see a moment where you... Like, it might have been the moment he got shot, but it's not super you clear. Yeah, you see it. They just brush past it very, very quickly. And, like, you know, you don't really... You can blink and miss it, basically. Um, and then mm-hmm. Theo dies after teaching her how to burp the baby. And she says, I'm going to name the baby Dylan after your dead son. And then Theo dies. And so the, after Theo dies, Key's looking around scared because she's just in a boat in the middle of the water and fog. And the camera kind of like starts to slowly pull out very slowly. And like the music kind of goes up and like it's kind of making you think this is going to be the last shot of the movie and the screen's about to go black. But then it's not the last shot of the movie. Instead, you hear a boat in the distance and then we see the boat coming out of the fog and she tells the baby we're safe, we're safe. And that's the last shot of the movie. The fact that I think it's kind of like trying to trick you into thinking it's going to be a not hopeful ending and then it instead makes it a hopeful ending, which is why I think, you know, the ending is hopeful. That head fake. I have another reason why I think it's a hopeful ending. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a hopeful ending because when the credits begin to roll, you start to hear the laughter of children. Yes. The kids. Uh, And obviously this is not stated directly or anything like that, but my interpretation of it is is that that is the future and that Mm -hmm. uh, kids do return and the laughter of children returns, and so the world survives. Uh, so I, I, I think that's what cements it for me as a hopeful thing, is uh, the sounds of the kids at the end. I agree, um, of course, but I think I want to go back to what I said at the beginning, where I really like about the film that it doesn't show you it. Like It, it gives you hints, it makes you un- understand what it's going at, but you know we don't get to see that it's called tomorrow, we don't get to see... The human project we never we never meet them we you know we don't get like a little montage of oh now the world is going to be fixed and children are going to be running around it, it, i like that it ends that way 
where it's kind of ambiguous, but we know that it is hopeful. But ultimately, you're not shown anything. And and well, I really appreciate that. Even if that boat comes and gets key and she gets in the boat, the human project, like that still doesn't, you know, yeah, who exactly. knows what Like even Theo next. says... Will, even she, Theo will, says, will her baby be an anomaly or be like, you know, yeah. Who, yeah who even, even Theo says, keep her close. Whatever they say, keep her close. Like, we don't know exactly the intention of the human project. Like, we we don't know. And, and I think that's well, I great. I can use hope, though, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fast forwarding through this final scene because I thought we do see the boat. I thought we do see the fact that it's called tomorrow. But give me a second. I can tell you. Whether I don't think so. Oh, there's the boat. Well, we see the boat. It's coming out of the fog. Yeah, we see it's called tomorrow. We see the name of the boat on the side. Yeah. Does it say? Okay, then I, I was wrong. It says that. tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. The boat is called tomorrow. That's the good. horse's name is Friday. Um, then ignore my yeah, stupid boat. The future comes out of the fog. Yes. <laughs> A boat called tomorrow comes out of the fog. The future is coming, guys. Uh, any final thoughts on Children of Men before we rank Children of Men? Grizz, anything? Good movie. I will say that it's it's not a perfect 10 for me. I know that you guys have said already that you that it is for you and that I think that's fantastic. Uh, but uh, the only reason that I'm not I'm hesitant to give it a perfect 10 is because uh, we don't get as much character development uh, explicitly as I think they could have done and still like I think we could have gotten a little more personality out of theo but because so much of the movie is chase sequences and things like that um and not dialogue driven that uh you know they the characters sometimes feel like they are serving their purpose without necessarily being expanded on does that make sense let me push back on a couple couple points i think it's subtle but it's there like for example after something we haven't talked about is after julianne moore's death um, well, first of all, before Julianne Moore dies, like there's like a they kiss, uh, Theo and Julian yep. kiss, and kind of like possibly suggest that like once they get key to the coast, maybe these two could re- rekindle. Um, but then she dies, and uh, after she dies, as they're burying her, Theo kind of walks away, and the camera comes with him, and you know them burying Julianne Moore's in the background, and he pulls out his cigarettes and his boot, his bottle of booze, but then breaks down crying. And, you know, yeah. the way he the way he self-medicates with his booze, it's it's not going to work this time. You know, uh, Julianne Moore's death is, is is too much for him to bear. So he 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 hides his crying from everyone else, but he still feels something. And then another thing is when they get to the fish's hideout again after Julianne Moore dies, he's given a fresh shirt because he has her blood on him. And um, one of the fishes tells him, I don't I don't think these bloodstains are going to come out. And he says, don't worry about it. Just throw it away. Which I think is, again, kind of like his uh, nihilism kind of coming back. Like, yeah. no sentimentality at all. It's just like, yeah, yeah. It's definitely very subtle. In fact, so but there much are of like that. subtle that I can but get that. There, yeah. there are character development pieces like that. And, like, if you watch this movie a dozen times like I have, I don't know. I, I think it's actually got pretty good character development of the L, personally. I think I just need to – what I need to do is the, the, the next time I watch it, I need to focus in on Theo more. This time I found myself watching more of – the spectacle of the movie uh, unless so maybe uh, upon my next rewatch, if I really focus in on Theo as a character, I will pick up more of the, uh, the subtlety there and appreciate it fully, but it's a fantastic movie. There's no doubt about it. It's, uh, you know, like I, the departed is one of my favorite movies of all time, but the children of men is so good that I, I'm not mad 
when people tell me that this is the best movie of 2006, even if I disagree with them, because it's that good. It's a fantastic, fantastic film. Final thoughts, Hugo. Yeah, I, ju- I just love this. Like, this is a, like, a top 20, 25 movie for me. I, I, every time I see it, I, I like it more. And, uh, and I find new little details to focus on. Uh, you were talking about the, the bottle of booze that he carries around. Like This time around, I noticed that at the beginning, he using it, uses it, as you say, to self-medicate. And by the end, the, what he uses it for is to disinfect his hands to help Key give birth. And we see it there again, and that, which is another subtle change that he goes through, I guess. It's, it's great. I just think it's really, really great. Um, yeah. I don't really I have agree. much more to say. Let's rank it. Uh, yes, let's rank it. So hold on one second. I'm going to make sure that the numbers are right here. Okay. All right. I think the numbers are probably good. Uh, well, real quick. Last week, I didn't get a chance to tell you where we ended up ranking um, our last one, remember, which was uh, uh, thank you for smoking because I didn't do the math beforehand. But the math comes out to uh, thank you for smoking goes to number 39 on our list behind Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Killing a Sacred Deer. Thank you for smoking at 39, Shaft at 40, makes it at 41. Um, but Hugo, where are you going to put Children of Men on your individual list? Children of Men is very, going very high on the list. I'm putting it at number five. So just below um, Memories of Murder. Memories of Murder, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and just ahead of Dr. Strangelove. Grizz, your yeah. individual list. Children of Men. On my individual list, I have Children of Men at number 11 just behind The Wind Rises and Paddington 2, and ahead of Anhadun and Dr. Strangelove. Uh, it's going at number three on my list, behind Mulholland Drive and Dr. Strangelove, and just ahead of Boogie Nights and Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and guess what, guys? That means we have a new number one film to remember. Oh, so is now oh wow. One. Just I was edging past Dr. Strangelove. Yes. It's funny that I have it wow. just behind Doctor Strangelove. Hugo has it just in front of Doctor Strangelove, and Grizz has it two spots with Doctor Strangelove. So it beats out Doctor Strangelove. New number one by just a smidge, <laughs> by a, by a hair, by a nice, just by a. <laughs> in fact, like I want to like actually well, go through the spreadsheet and like make sure that I have everything correct because like maybe it's actually two, okay. but I'm pretty sure it's number one. I'm like ninety five percent confident it's number one. New number one movie. That's pretty so, neat, though. It is neat. Hugo, what are we watching next week? Okay, so next week, um, I had a few ideas, but I thought this would be fun. Um, last time I picked a Hong Kong action movie, and I've been, I've been watching a bunch of Hong Kong movies lately, so I wanted to go back to Hong Kong, but without doing an action movie. So I picked a movie by director Wong Kar Wai, um, and his most famous movie, I guess, is In the Mood for Love, but I, I picked my favorite of his movies uh, to watch for this, uh, which is the movie Chunking Express. I'm very excited. So, it's a very, yeah. very well-regarded very movie. It's it. been on my list for a long time, and I've never seen it. I think so. you guys would like this one. I'm, I'm sure very excited for it as well. It, it, it was suggested to me by friends also, of the Jackson, show. Also, Jackson, this guest. is for you. Jackson, well, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Jackson, I'm going to get, get around to watching it now. Grizz, where can people find you online? You can find me on twitch.tv slash goodgamegrizz, uh, on Twitter at goodgamegrizz, and please follow me on Letterboxd to enjoy my reviews uh, on uh, Jeff Ulrich on Letterboxd. Good That's Game Grizz cross-platforms. Hugo. 
Um, you can find me at Hugo underscore Pinai on Twitter and at Hugo Pinai on uh, on <laughs> Judas making fun of me for how I pronounce my name, but I need to make it understood uh, on uh, Letterboxd. Well, no, hang on. <laughs> no, now we have to. Now I have no, to. No, it's it's fine. Forget it. Just move on. <laughs> nope. Nope. Not moving on. Josh, where can we? How are we supposed to pronounce your name? Okay, so my name is H U G O Hugo, and the reason why I have an H in the name is because my mum wanted to give me a name that would be that would make sense both in Italian and in English. So in English, I'm people in English call me Hugo. So all my family from England calls me Hugo, but in Italian, it's actually Ugo because you don't pronounce you don't pronounce the H in Italian, and usually right. that name exists without the H in front. And so that's that would be my name, but, but also the surname oh, is okay. Pinai. But when I'm speaking English, it comes out more as Pinai. It's it, you know you wouldn't you probably don't even notice the difference, but Julia does. I mean, I can hear it. Pinai, Pinai versus it's Pinai. Pinai <laughs> instead of Pinai, but it's very difficult to switch accents in the middle of of talking. So Ugo Pinai. There you go. That's the explanation. Ugo Pinai. Ugo so if you Pinai. want to search me that way, you can. So make sure you make sure you as you type it out, looking for him in Letterbox, you type it the Italian way. Just just a yes. note to all listeners. Of course. Uh, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at the Sloop Josh B on YouTube, Moves I Love, so can you. I actually have a video on Children of Men, which is something I didn't realize when I suggested it, but I do have a I don't know, half an hour video on Children of Men on my YouTube channel that I made like five, six years ago. Um huh. I'm probably repeating myself <laughs> in this episode versus what I talk about in that, but you know, check that out if you so choose. Um, and then I'm also on TikTok, uh, unfortunately, at Josh W. Bradley. With a lot of Nora Ephron content, I guess, uh, to elude the <laughs> episode. Um, that's it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy Children of Men. Uh, it's depressing, but, you know, it's hopeful. So keep good faith. So's life. Get yeah. used to it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and please join us again next week for The Chunking Express. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Adios.